Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, independent autopsy results are released in the police shooting of Andrew Brown Jr. The Supreme Court takes a first step to roll back New York's strict gun control laws. And New York loses one congressional seat in the newly released census, but it could have been worse. In today's news, Andrew Brown Jr. died from a fatal gunshot to the back of the head. His family members and family attorneys announced Tuesday, citing the release of an independent autopsy report. Brown, a 42-year-old black man, was shot in the driveway outside his home in Elizabeth City, North Carolina last week while trying to drive away from police officers who were serving a search warrant. This is family attorney Benjamin Crump. Now, you all know... From the death certificate, that it was a penetrating gunshot wound to the head. But attorney sellers, what they did not know was that it was a kill shot to the back of the head. Since Brown's killing, three Pasquatonk County Sheriff's deputies have resigned and seven more have been placed on administrative leave. However, local authorities still have not released police body cam footage of Brown's killing. And as if America doesn't have enough gun violence, the Supreme Court announced Monday it will hear a challenge later this year to New York's concealed carry law, one of the strictest in the nation. If the court's conservative majority, if the court's conservative majority rolls back the laws, 600,000 New Yorkers or 10 percent of the city's adult population could be packing heat in public in the future. That's according to UCLA professor Adam Winkler, a Second Amendment expert who tweeted earlier today that parts of the country with lax gun laws typically see 10 percent or more of adults register for concealed carry. One shudders to think how much more trigger happy the police will be if this comes to pass. COVID infection rates continue falling across New York as more people get vaccinated. In response, Governor Andrew Cuomo has announced a further easing of COVID restrictions. Beginning May 15th, offices will be able to increase capacity from 50 to 75 percent and gyms outside of New York City from 33 to 50 percent. And on May 19th, outdoor sports stadia such as Yankee Stadium and City Field will go up from 20 to 33 percent. Meanwhile, the Biden administration announced Monday it will dip into the U.S.'s stockpile of vaccines and share millions of doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine with other countries such as India, which is reeling from a surge in COVID infections and deaths. In other COVID news, New York City's First Lady, Shirlane McRae, announced earlier today that the city will make a mental wellness program available to all public school students when they return to class next fall. Well, think of the peace of mind that comes from a regular checkup from a pediatrician. It's a preventive measure. It has a focus on maintaining wellness. These screenings are preventive measures as well. Children will receive individual attention to their emotional well-being. They will have an opportunity to talk about how they're feeling, how they're getting along with friends and classmates, how things are going at home, really anything big or small that they're experiencing. Those are conversations that are that they should be able to have in the best of times. But after the year we've had, these conversations mean more than ever before. We'll be talking more about what's happening in the public schools after the headlines. The federal government released its 2020 census results Monday, and it shows the U.S. population continues to move to the South and the West. New York was one of seven states to lose a congressional seat. Many observers had expected New York to lose 
two seats before an all-out blitz by the city to reach historically undercounted populations took place last year. This is Amit Singh Baja, former deputy director of the NYC 2020 census campaign, who is now running for city council in Queens. Coming out of the 2020 census, New York City reached a historic response rate of 62%, which was powered by our city's $40 million census campaign, an unprecedented effort that invested millions of dollars directly into black, brown, Asian, and immigrant communities explicitly for the purposes of community organizing, a first in U.S. history. With these results, we were able to save an entire congressional seat here in the state of New York. The state of New York was slated to lose two congressional seats prior to the census. And despite battling COVID-19 and attacks from Donald Trump every step of the way, the fact that we only lost one is a true testament to the success of this campaign. And finally, in East Harlem, supporters of CUNY's Center for Puerto Rican Studies rallied today outside its offices to demand that CUNY reverse devastating budget cuts to the more than half-century-old institution. This is longtime Puerto Rican activist, educator, and poet Esperanza Martel speaking at the rally. I am here as someone who was a young person in the early 70s, and we fought through the young lords and the the Puerto Rican Student Union. We fought, fought to create the Center for Puerto Rican Studies. And here I am, 50, over 50 years later, having to save the Centro again because CUNY it's not. We'll be back with more after this short break. Southern Feet. Barren, strange fruit. Blood on the leaves. And blood at the roots. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Nina Simone singing Strange Fruit. 
And you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's radical newspaper, now in its 21st year of publishing. I'm joined today by my indie colleague, uh, Amba Gagarian. Amba, it's great to have you with us. Thanks, John. It's great to be here with you and all our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Right. And before we turn to our first segment, one more update on the Andrew Brown Jr. story. Uh, This afternoon, the FBI announced it's beginning a a civil rights investigation into the police killing of Andrew Brown Jr. So we'll see what uh, comes of that, but a uh, ongoing story that we're continuing to follow. And now uh, for our first segment, it's late April, uh, which for New York City public school students in grades three to eight means it's standardized testing season. Many parents and teachers have long criticized the tests for being unreliable, punitive, and incapable of measuring the real learning that takes place in a classroom. This year, for the first time, the New York City Department of Education is requiring students to opt into taking this battery of tests instead of having to opt out. In an op-ed that recently appeared uh, on independent.org and is also in our May print edition, Parent activist and District 38 City Council candidate Alexa Aviles celebrates the move as a good first step while also insisting now let's cancel the tests altogether. Alexa, welcome to WBAI Radio. Hi, John. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm excited to be here. Great. It's, it's, it's great to have you with us. Uh, can you start by describing your involvement Uh, with your children's public schools uh, out there in Sunset Park, and also describe why you disagree so strongly with standardized testing of students. Mm. Well, thank you. Um, So my daughters are now 15 and 12, so that means they're in high school and middle school. And uh, my engagement with them and and certainly the education system started when my oldest daughter entered uh, preschool. Uh, in in uh, when she was four, so uh, ever since she was four, I jumped in to get engaged with the school, and I became the PTA president, uh, which I did for about ten years, and that included everything from the traditional one things of you know bake sales to really engaging and talking about curriculum class sizes and all the kind of advocacy issues and family support that that emerges in a school building, right? Because everything kind of shows up uh, if children need food, right? We see it in a school building. If a family needs extra support, it really does manifest um, with children in a school building. So I have just been involved for since, since then. So for a good uh, 10, 12 years now, um, you know, in terms of the standardized testing, um, You know, it's been a while uh, as we looked more and more at these instruments and really kind of how they became tied to both measuring singularly uh, what children are learning or not and tying them to, you know, teacher performance or how well a school is performing. As, As these tests have become kind of a singular measure, it has demonstrated how what a failed tool it is because there is no single indicator that could actually um, appropriately, right, developmentally appropriately for children, but also even for the school system, show truthfully and honest, honestly 
how a school or a child is performing academically. So it's just it's just totally the wrong instrument for what we need to do for our children and our schools. Yeah, and talk to us a little bit about the impact on the students as they go through this standardized process. Yeah, so, you know, I think, you know, as as you would imagine, right, our schools are filled with all kinds of learners, right, visual learners, audio learners, um, some children who do really amazing on tests, um, it re- really depending on this one instrument really kind of fails many different types of learners. And so I, I think it does everything from send the wrong message to our kids about how how they learn, how they reflect that learning, how we measure it, how we value it. Um, so it's everything from the wrong message to also how they internalize this practice, right? If they don't do well on this one test, it creates both stress, stress and anxiety. And it tells them things that isn't isn't quite right. So I think, you know, repeatedly doing this throughout the years um, just sends exactly the wrong message to our children. Um, but it does tell them what we value in the system, which is um, sadly not what we should be focused on. And, and can you talk a little bit about uh, how standardized testing has become a big business? Is somebody oh, yeah. benefiting from this? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think one of the things we saw recently um, at the panel for educational policy was the first time, and that's what used to be the school board um, in days before, I guess, I can't remember when the transition happened, but um, there was a rejection of the gifted and talented test contract, which was, I believe it was about a $4 million contract. And this is a test for four-year-olds to determine if they're going to be placed in this advanced track. This is only one of many, many tests, right? These contracts are multi-million dollar contracts. There are whole sectors of organizations, business entities that are set up around teaching children how to take a test, how to perform well. And it, it starts from, you know, third grade all the way through college, right? So this is a massive industry um, that we're talking about. Um, and, uh, you know, in the article, we mentioned, you know, that that one particular contract, I, I'm actually forgetting the numbers right now, but it is a significantly large contract. There are lobbying interests that make sure that our legislators at the state level, you know, continue to support this construct, um, to make sure they continue to support, they continue to get those very lucrative contracts, um, so we have to really kind of dismantle the system and the incentives around propping up this test tool, which we know is inadequate. Yeah, and talk a little bit about how test results have been used to actually close dozens of schools in mostly low-income communities and how that has impacted the communities. Yeah, it's a, such a great question. And honestly, you know, one of the one of the many indicators of what a failure um, this this is on so many levels, right? Used to close schools, but certainly not used as a solution. It's not a solution by any stretch of the uh, any stretch of the imagination. And so, yeah. So for many years, um, school performance was singularly based on you know an aggregate of of what these test scores were, and we know <laughs> children 
and educators, right? Our school communities faced with so many different uh, variables, right? How a child performs on a test is a is accumulation of so many different social factors, right? If if you're hungry, you don't you don't perform well on a particular thing. If you're if you have things going on, if you can't concentrate, if you're an audio learner and they give you a book to read, you know you're not going to perform as well. So, school closures have been um, determined by these tests. At one point, teacher performances were were connected to performance on tests, right? When we had teachers really pushing back and saying, you know, how is this possible? So we have tried to link these tests to all kinds of things. And, you know, it's part it's part of the 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 design of how, you know, it, it maintains its positional power, right? If we connect it systemically, then it becomes harder to disentangle. So we keep trying to recreate spaces to connect this test to really just keep it going. Uh, but many schools have been closed. Teachers, you know, have, have had real challenges um, around, you know, what they know, you know, the fight between wanting a child to, um I, actually, a principal was recently saying, you know, the tests do nothing. Like, they tell us nothing about a child. We want child children to demonstrate their voice and their agency and, and their creative thinking skills. And the test does nothing in that regard. Um, and so I guess I guess I answered a little bigger than just uh, just the schools and and just the teachers, but it really has negatively impacted kind of every dimension of learning. Right, and is is it fair to say that um, many of our uh, you know elected officials, mayors in particular, have uh, sort of used the testing process as a way to dodge their own accountability? For for uh, underfunding and under supporting public schools, and, and, and uh, you know wield these tests uh, against the schools that they themselves uh, have abandoned. Yeah, you know, I think this rise of tests really came, you know, was part of this privatization, corporate America move that we've seen over the decades, right? Where everything can, it can be developed or tracked in some kind of matrix out in some weird objective universe. And we know it's totally incorrect, right? We're humans and um, human learning and competency and creativity is not gonna be captured in a matrix. Um, We can't apply these corporate private capitalist models, right, to everything. So we did see this increase in resurgence under the Bloomberg administration uh, to like really dig deep in this kind of corporate model that just doesn't work at all. So what would what would an alternative be? Yeah, so I think, you know, um, I think we have even at the high school level, we have a growing group, a small but growing group of schools that don't do the AP regents or those kind of standardized tests for that level. They do performance-based assessments, right? And it could be a project where um, young people demonstrate what they've learned throughout the year. How are they applying what they've learned? Um, uh, and, and you know, they, they demonstrate all the different kind of facets of learning, right? That you want to see, like, what is the critical thinking looking like? What is the creativity um, of a child. So certainly 
measures that are more flexible, right, that really actually are more nuanced and connect with the capacities and competencies that are important for for young people to develop are done with more fluid instruments, not these kind of like, you know, A, B, and C, and and it's all clear in the answer. So, you know, projects, performance-based assessments, including assessments for teachers, right? Like how how are they engaging with students? What is important? How, How is it important to meet the student where they are, right? To really bring some individualized, teaching and skill building because every student is unique. And it's something we see in like, that's been talked about about schools in Finland where they don't take standardized tests. Um, and they, they pride themselves on actually meeting students where they are and trying to figure out, um, you know, how best to move young people or students along in their learning journey, as opposed to this kind of one, one square or one, one mode fits all. Right. It, it reminds me of the old saying, uh, uh, what can, what can be measured doesn't count and what counts can't be measured. Uh, yeah. yeah. And um, uh, before we have to go here in, in the next uh, minute or so, uh, what would you do if you you're running for city council? So if if you win uh, the city council seat out there in District 38 in, in Sunset Park, what would you do on city council to to address this? Yeah, so, so unfortunately, uh, uh, much of education policy is set at the state level. So a lot of the direct advocacy is really getting our state colleagues um, to really take a second look. Um, but however, at the city level, it will be really advocating for actually the education system. Our this New York City school system is very unclear around even a parent's right to opt in or opt out. I think we've seen actually a lot more children taking the test, even though they had to opt in because parents were unsure about what it means. So I would definitely advocate for much clearer guidance to parents, obviously in many languages, um, because that is a huge barrier for so many. You know, I would I would continue to push our system to be as creative and responsive to learning as absolutely possible, both in the curriculums that we set, right, and opening those up, making them culturally responsible, and de-emphasizing and hopefully taking away these tools that really do not serve our children or our system at all, or the teachers for that matter. All righty. We'll have to leave it there, but Alexa Aviles, a union mom, parent, advocate, democratic socialist running for city council. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI radio today. Your uh, article we have, it's up on our feature box on independent.org right now for anybody who wants to, to read it. And it's also in our print edition. And thank you for joining us today on today's show. Well, thank you. And, you know, I have to thank all the teachers and the educators out there, the parents and the students, Um, you know, without them, we wouldn't be doing this work. So thank you for the opportunity to talk. It was really fun. I hope you have a great show. All right. Thank you so much. We'll be back after this uh, short break with our with our next segment.
I'm Ambegar Garian with The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find us online at indypendent.org. I'm joined by John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. You are listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. Thanks, Amba. And before we continue with our second segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so who's listening right now to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this one and so many others on the air. And uh, we'll uh, give that uh, number a little later in the show that uh, people can call into. They can also go uh, straight to give number two, WBAI.org. And uh, you can make a one-time donation or better yet, sign up as a WBAI buddy at give number two, WBAI.org. You can become a buddy for uh, $10 per month or more and help keep WBAI on the air and uh, going strong. And uh, also, um, before we turn to our, our next guest, I just want to let our listeners know that we released our May print edition on Friday, and you can find it in our red and white news boxes across the city. And our cover story looks at the relationship between ICE and several New York, several New Jersey counties who make millions of dollars per year off of holding immigrant detainees for, for the federal government. And Amba, uh, you're the lead author on our cover story, and you began covering the hunger strikes that were taking place in Hudson, Essex, and Bergen County jails last fall. And, and you really dug into this story for over five months. And, um, you know, just in a little bit of time we have here, can you give us a few highlights of what you learned and, uh, you know, what, people will find it in your cover article yeah well i you know thanks john um i i started the story actually because hunger strikes um had been happening at the hudson bergen and essex county jails in new jersey that have contracts with ice to house ice detainees um, from which you know they get millions of dollars uh, a year tens of millions in most cases um, and so uh, a lot of detainees uh, actually around the country, but especially there, started going on hunger strikes um, in protest of ICE, in protest of the way that COVID was being handled and, 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 and a lot of the terrible conditions in the jails. And talking to them, hearing their stories, I realized, oh, this is, you know, it, it's great to publish an interview with these guys, but this is a this is a big story. You know, pe- counties um, are are making, as I said, um, anywhere between $7 million to $35 million a year off of detaining immigrants who legally should be civil detainees, meaning they should not be treated as um, the way that prisoners are. But in reality, they often are treated, I mean, it's hard to say what's worse, but they don't get any yard time. And um, it's it's really bad. You know, listeners should go... Um, Pick up one of our papers or uh, go online and check out the article, Cold as Ice, um, if you want to hear about some of the, the specifications of this. But, you know, when it comes down to it, there are quite a few politicians that are very entrenched in, you know, Bergen, Essex and Hudson County politics that are, you know, very happy to be getting this extra money. Um, and it doesn't seem like they are willing to budge. So it's up to a lot of community organizers, advocates um, to, to change the situation. Um, and all of these uh, ca- uh, county machines out there are all run by Democrats. And of course, during the Trump era, we heard so much about how, you know, the, the Democrats were taking the position of leading the resistance to Trump and a lot of his abuses. And 
yeah, you know, we find in, in, in these counties and, and your story really uh, teases it out, teases it out. Um, how, you know, these, these uh, uh, democratic parties out there and, and their, and their leaders are, are more than happy to, you know, make a lot of money off of, uh, you know, off of the uh, ICE's uh, largesse and, and use it to fund whatever pet projects uh, they, they prefer. Like a zoo or, you know, making a new park after they already had or, you know, probably paying, you know, higher salaries to certain employees. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a big issue is that these are Democratic, you know, um, politicians, elected officials. And it it clearly means, you know, it's not a partisan issue, as we also see um, at the, you know, executive country, executive level of things, the presidential level. But I think it, it is important to remember that they these you know elected officials in jersey have used this as a ploy to get elected and to win the favor of voters when immigration was a trump issue and it was a bad thing that republicans did they said no we're going to end that we're going to end these um contracts that we have with ice and that was in 2018 and then now it's 2020 and biden's president and uh you know, they don't have anyone to speak out against and they're silent and they're not doing anything about it. They're not ending them. You know, it's just it was just a way to get votes, I guess. Um, well, that's my speculation. But anyway, I know we have some other stuff to cover. Yeah, I think I think uh, you've uh, got a, another great guest lined up from New Jersey. Yeah, we do. Today we have more Jersey coverage. We have Nadia Morsi, um, who is the organizing director of Make the Road. Um, but uh, first, I'll give a little background of what she's going to be talking about. Last month, excluded workers in New York fasted for 24 days, calling for a New York State legislator to legislator, sorry, to create a fund um, that basically. It gives direct cash assistance um, to excluded workers, and that was successful. And a $2.1 billion fund was included in the budget, uh, the budget passage at the beginning of this month. And now across the Hudson, a group of excluded workers and their allies are on their 20th day of fasting in a hunger strike to push the New Jersey governor, um, Phil Murphy, to do the same, to create a fund um, for excluded workers. And for more than a year now, Jersey immigrant advocates have been calling on Governor Murphy to fund $600 weekly payments to undocumented workers who don't qualify for federal aid or unemployment benefits. His and his, uh, he is allegedly considering an executive order that would provide some benefits, but far less than what advocates are demanding. And so we have Nidia Morsi, organizing director of Make the Road New Jersey, a grassroots organization that builds the power of immigrant working class and Latinx communities. And this organization has been very instrumental in um, organizing the strike. So Nidia, welcome to the show. Or is it Nadia? Nadia. Nadia. Nadia, welcome to the show. Uh, Tell us what the demands are of the strikers and how you all have been organizing around this issue, you know, in the long run. And then recently, what was the decision to make the strike? But yeah, start with the demands. For sure. Yes. So um, immigrant uh, and excluded workers and immigrant families across the state of New Jersey are demanding $600 weekly payments to unemployed workers left behind from unemployment and $2,000 direct cash payments to immigrants who were excluded from um, federal relief. Um, you know, these are the things that we're asking for, not gift cards and not a penny less, um, right? We're more than a year into the pandemic now and, and we need real relief and, you know, lots of attention around this, this 21. Now we're on 20 day. Today is day 21. Oh, 21. Okay. Thank you. And 
um, you know, really, just like you were saying, this has started last March. Um, you know, community members have hosted, we did an encampment outside of the Capitol building in the summertime. Um, you know, members shared copies of, of bills that were going unpaid. We've done Christmas caroling outside of legislators' offices when there was, you know, some movement around legislation to pass um, recovery for excluded workers. And we were hosting virtual town halls with legislators. We celebrated St. Patrick's Day without relief. Um, we were hosting actions around Valentine's Day, actions in front of, um, you know, legislators' offices, uh, bird dogging legislatures, an excluded women's march to celebrate Women's Day. We've blocked traffic. Um, we've collected more than 10,000 petition signatures. We've put billboards on the turnpike um, that are, you know, taking you right before you're about to, um, you know, get into uh, a legislator's district. Um, and 21 days ago, we launched this fast. Um, and really, it came from, uh, you know, our members, you know, were putting what felt like constant and consistent pressure because we were trying to make the distinction that this is a life and death issue, right? We know COVID-19 here in New Jersey killed young Hispanic men four and a half times the rate of Hispanic women, twice the rate of young Black men, seven times the rate of, of young white men. Um, and we felt like that distinction still wasn't coming across. Um, and there was this really beautiful, powerful moment where we actually got to connect with the New York strikers via Zoom um, and they shared their experience, how they themselves had come to the decision to, to um, you know, strike. And it felt like there was this virtual torch that got passed. And then we made this decision. And here we are 21 days later on on strike. Right. And, and can you talk a little bit more about uh, how the, the victory here in New York, where excluded workers won uh, a $2.1 billion fund um, in the state budget agreement at the um, at the end of, of of March, and can you talk about how that uh, first ever uh, victory for an excluded workers fund uh, affected the momentum of your organizing in New Jersey, and also uh, how many people uh, would you like to see covered by the excluded workers fund you have in, in mind in New Jersey? In New York, it's estimated it's going to cover something like two hundred and ninety thousand workers. Yeah, so. Um, yes, the right, you know, first in the nation, you know, this official fund, but other states like Oregon, California, Colorado have also created, um, you know, funds for excluded workers. Um, yes, like what New York did was um, notable and powerful and, you know, really sort of like injected our membership with this like vigor and excitement about what is possible here in New Jersey. And actually here in New Jersey, we actually have a higher share of undocumented workers in our workforce than in New York. Um, and so we felt like, you know, we can push hard um, because our, our, you know, our workforce and our community is so strong here in New Jersey. Um, you know, and, and for us, you know, similar to uh, California and New York, um, we believe that the, you know, fund needs to be as, you know, inclusive as possible. We need to ensure as many people as possible are able to get relief. And so, you know, really wanting to follow in the footsteps of um, all of the states that have, have come forth already and, and created funds and, um, you know, made the act like the barrier to access very, very low. Um, 
And so, um, you know, speaking of the amount of money and, and, and the governor, uh, Murphy is, is allegedly toying around with this idea to use $40 million, um, of federal dollars from the CARES Act, um, to go to undocumented immigrants in Jersey. But this is obviously way less than what you're asking for. So how do you hope to overcome that disparity? And, and, you know, also when, when do you expect to hear an answer from him? Yeah. So, I think, you know, we are encouraged that the governor is is listening to the community and taking active steps, right? You know, we went from, um, you know, zero to $40 million, and that is a testament of to community power. Um, but you're right, it, it, it would... Um, it would only cover a fraction of the population and for our, for our community members, um, you know, that is not acceptable. Um, and so they are, you know, when we heard about the offer, um, our members made the decision then and there that they would continue to the fast until we had a real commitment for real relief. Um, and I think, you know, we don't have a sense of, of when we're going to hear back, but, you know, just in these last three weeks, we have built incredible support, um, more than 60 organizations, the support of small businesses, the New Jersey Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, the National Council of La Raza, um, 20 elected officials, including, um, you know, the mayor of Parsippany, 13 major labor unions, some national, including 32BJ, um, just yesterday, Dolores Huerta, um, leader of United Farm Workers, um, you know, came out in support of, um, uh, you know, recovery for all. Um, former presidential candidate Julian Castro, um, you know, tweeted at the governor, um, you know, so we have seen that, you know, we are building incredible support around, um, you know, this issue. And it's a testament to um, our members organizing. And, you know, we are committed as ever to hold strong. And, uh, New Jersey has elections this year. Governor Murphy's up for re-election, and I believe the many or all of the state legislators are up for re-election. Do you have a sense of that they're they're maybe trying to duck this issue in a in a re-election year, and uh, and maybe Murphy's uh, running cover for some of his members by uh, floating that forty million dollar executive action? Uh, uh, I guess what's your sense of the politics of it, and 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 how to make this. Uh, be seen as a, a winning issue, not as a, a potent, you know, potential albatross that some of these uh, Democrats would try to avoid. For sure. And again, you know, we don't have, you know, total clarity on, on where the inaction is. And, you know, I think on the legislature's side, they had ample opportunity to pass legislation. There was legislation that was floating you know, even before 2021, in, in 2020, it had bipartisan support. Um, and really, we saw absolutely total inaction from leadership in both chambers to bring that legislation to the floor. Um, you know, and here we are, 13 months later, you know, people have cooked, have cleaned, have delivered packages, you know, while the rest of us have, you know, sheltered down, you know, we have been, you know, lifting up the stories of our members, um, Karina, you know, worked in a supermarket despite having, um, you know, uh, medical issues. She was excluded from aid. Her husband lost work. Another one of our members lost his job. His wife was hospitalized. Um, and, you know, they were struggling to think about how they were going to pay medical bills. He didn't know if his wife was going to come out of, um, you know, um, out of the hospital. And so I think, you know, our responsibility has been really, you know, lifting up these stories to help really underline, you know, that we can't really get caught up in, you know, the noise of 
the calendar year, but really that we must be passing recovery for all because we're not going to get out of this pandemic. Um, and the consequences will reverberate for years and years and generations to come, um, you know, if we are not reacting and responding urgently to this crisis. Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, I spoke with someone the other day who made a really good point that we are seeing, you know, the we're, we're in a pandemic, but we haven't seen the financial downfall that we're going to see as far as evictions and just poverty that's going to take place if safety nets like this aren't, you know, implemented. And yeah, so I really appreciate all the work that you guys are doing. But speaking of that, talk just for a minute. We're going to wrap it up but a little bit about how the strikers are doing. Um, you know, the fa- it's a lot to not eat for that many days and and how our listeners can support them um, or support the action. Yes. So um, strikers are doing well. Um, we connect every single day, um, which is, is great for morale and, you know, thinking about tomorrow. Um, and, you know, listeners can support by signing our petition. You can find it on our, um, all of our social media, social media pages, Facebook, Make the Road New Jersey, Instagram, um, at Make the Road NJ, Twitter, at Make the Road NJ. Um, and of course, you know, calling the officers, the ca- calling the governor's office directly um, again. And you can also find, um, you know, his contact information on our social media pages. Well, thank you so much, Nadia, for joining us, and uh, we wish you the best of luck. Um, We're going to go into our uh, third segment after this short break. El Santo Padre by Soledad Bravo. What will the Holy Father say? And uh, you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief, along with Amber Gagarian, also from the Independent. In our final segment today, uh, we look at uh, evictions and uh, the situation for tenants who've been impacted by, uh, by the pandemic. And throughout the course of the pandemic, tenant organizations have been working very hard to obtain city and state rent relief programs and protections against evictions for the millions of New Yorkers who haven't been able to pay their rent due to job loss. And one of those groups is the Flatbush Tenant Coalition. And here to speak with us about uh, one of their current campaigns to immediately ensure the right to counsel for, for all New York City tenants are Valerie Coley and Angelic Murphy, and uh, who are tenant uh, leaders with the coalition and also Sarah uh, Gillette, one of the organizers. 
Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. <laughs> sure, it's great to to have the whole crew here uh, today. Uh, and can you, uh, for starters, can you, Angeli, uh, 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 tell us uh, about some of the difficulties tenants are experiencing right now uh, living through COVID in New York City? Hi, um, yeah, my name is Angel Murphy, and I work with. Flatbush Tenant Coalitions, and the difficulties that a lot of tenants are having right now is that they can't pay their rent. A lot of uh, tenants lost their jobs, and a lot of them are also um, have health issues, and landlords are demanding rent and are looking towards evicting them once the moratorium lifts. Right, and so Oh, continue. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to, right now, the reason why we're on your radio show is to have Council Member Matthew Eugene sign on to intro 2050. Right? He, the only thing he had promised us was lip service, saying that he supports intro 2050, but he hasn't signed on. And he's one of the signatures that we need because we have 25. And with his signature, 26, it would make it official. Intro 2050 was introduced by city council members, Vanessa Gibson and Mark Levine. And what it would do, it would um, amend local law 136 and require immediate implementation of right to council with no zip code rollout. So what that means is everyone in New York City would have access to an attorney to represent them in court. And I can give an example. In my case, a couple of years ago, my building um, had conditions that we were concerned about. And when we went to our landlord, he basically gave us lip service and nothing was done. So we formed um, meetings on once a month. And one of the tenants introduced us to Flatbush Tenant Coalition. And they would come in and educate us and let us know our rights. And when we tried again, to have to speak with the landlord regarding the conditions in our building, nothing words was done. So my zip code is one of the zip codes that don't have access to an attorney, but we were able to get the Brooklyn Legal Services to help us represent us in court and take care of all the paperwork. Because if you've ever been to court, housing court, it's very depressing. It's very difficult. And a lot of the landlords and the attorneys they use, what they would do is they would cancel at the last minute to go in court and represent and reschedule all the time. All right. And, we're having uh, some uh, background noise here. I don't know if that's coming from, uh, from uh, Valerie's connection or, or oh, what, sorry. but um, yeah. It, so no, it's not somebody's uh, moving around and making some weird noises. Uh, let's just, uh, you know, try to uh, keep everything uh, smooth here. Uh, but, but um, please go on. Oh, Okay. And, you know, in, in housing court, it's very difficult for a lot of tenants because many of them cannot take off days from work. They don't have um, sick days. They don't have vacation days. So a lot of them just deal with the situation, either leave the apartment or take the abuse from the landlord. You know, so with having an attorney, it really, really helps to take off the stress for tenants, knowing that they have legal representation because many don't understand um, the, 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 the legal um, paperwork. So it, it really helps. And that's why we're really pushing for intro 2050 for representation. 
Right. And it seems like this is also something that will be very important going into a time when, unfortunately, I know you all are doing everything you can to stop it, but evictions, you know, will be on the rise. So, yes. Um, yeah. You know, but, you know, May 1st is, is Saturday, you know, and right now we don't know what's going on. So we're trying, we're trying everything we can. Right. And so, Valerie, tell us a little bit about, um, and we're still hearing the scratching noise. I don't know if someone's walking around or. No, it's not coming from me. Huh. Okay. All right. Well, I don't hear any more. So I think we're good. Welcome, Valerie. Um, thank you, Nigel. And um, is it from me? I don't know who it is. Maybe it's the WBAI. I don't know. Anyway, just speak we, loudly. We, we have a we have a ghost in our uh, in our uh, system somewhere. We're here, gonna right? get to the rest of the questions, but okay. Valerie, try and mute you. No, it's not you. All right. Well, speak loudly, I guess. So, tell us about what you're doing to hold elected officials accountable to sign this bill. Um, and I, I think you have an action coming up, so make sure to mention that. Yeah. So, I'm. I've been with the coalition for many years. I'm also yeah. a tenant leader. So, my um, what we're doing is we're doing um, a, a, an action. We're doing an action to have Matthew Eugene sign on to the intro 20, um, 2015. So my my thing is to uh, invite the, well, I hope you have a great large audience because we're here to invite the audience, all the listeners to join us um, on Wednesday, you know, at the, the action. It's going to be at his office Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Wednesday, uh, that's tomorrow, the 28th. It's going to be at his office at 900 um, Rogers Avenue. So we're also um, asking people to to call, you know, make phone calls, you know, um, multiple phone calls if you have to. They might not get an um, an actual um, person. They'll most likely get an answering, um, a voicemail or answering machine or something. But just keep leaving messages because um, Matthew Eugene is not a guy that comes out for us. Okay. Um, he hasn't done anything for, for, we invite him out. We invite him out to, to come out and speak. To, he only shows up when it's election time. He comes to the, to the polling sites and shakes everybody's hands. But other than that, he really doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't, he, he doesn't do anything. He just talks a lot. So we're, we're inviting people to come out on, um, we're inviting people to come out, join us on Wednesday um, at the action at his office and to keep calling, you know, leaving voicemails and his phone number, we have it here. His phone number is 718-287-8762. And one more thing is we're also um, asking people to join, join the Flatbush Tenants Coalition. You know, um, we have meetings every second Saturday of the month. And this, uh, our coalition has done so much along with the other coalition, but for in our area here, they have done so much for so many that it is worth joining. It's worth coming out and hearing your, your rights, what the tenants, right? A lot of tenants don't know what their rights are. So, you know, they need to come out and learn how to form an asso- a tenants association in their buildings and, you know, like that. So that's pretty much what um, I'm here to talk about. Well, thank you so much all for being here. And, um, you know, just just to mention, 
Uh, we did reach out to uh, the council member Eugene for a comment, uh, you know, about about intro 2050, and he did not respond. Um, and just remember, so. folks, that's tomorrow. Uh, you said 90 Rogers Avenue at 1 p.m. 900. 900. Sorry, 900 Rogers Avenue, 1 p.m. Thank yep. you all so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thanks for having us. You bet. Thank you again to Valerie Coley. And Jill Murphy and Sarah Gillette, all from the Flatbush Tenant Coalition, fighting hard for tenant rights and to defend against evictions and to win important legislation in city council that would provide uh, legal counsel to all tenants uh, in the city who need it at, at this uh, very dire moment. And on that note, we'll have to wrap up uh, tonight's show. And thank you for listening to the Independent News Hour. Thank you to our board engineer, Reggie Johnson, also to Adam Meyer for his help. And uh, it's great uh, being here with you again uh, this evening, uh, Amba Gagarian. And, and, uh, you our, too. You, you bet. And uh, <laughs> just for listeners out there, you can support WBAI uh, by uh, giving uh, to, uh, 20 to uh, 202. Let's see. I, I think I've... Yes, the the number for giving, 212-209-2877. Please help keep shows like this on the air. Keep WBAI beaming across the New York City area, 212-209-2877. And uh, we'll be preempted next week, but we'll be back same time uh, two weeks from today. And we look forward to being with you. Why we met, vanished in the end.